It's Friday, April 30th, 2021. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, it's the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast. I'm Josh Rollerson. Climate change is a diabolically complicated problem, demanding sophisticated, often technical solutions. But in one sense, it's actually quite simple. There's no aspect of human life anywhere on the planet that won't be touched in the years ahead by warmer temperatures, higher sea levels, more extreme weather events, and all the resulting social and economic disruption. When you look at it that way, all the big historic challenges we face in this century are really just different aspects of the same monumental Ur problem. Whether we're talking about land use, food production, national security, the economy, human health, whatever, it all comes back to climate. And as sobering as that may be, it's also wonderfully clarifying. I mean, the U.S. Constitution gives us the right to free speech, freedom of religion. What good are those if we're going to suffocate in climate change? There is nothing more fundamental than a healthy environment. Without that, we cannot have life. Fifty years ago, State Senator Franklin Curry led the push to secure environmental rights in Pennsylvania's state constitution. Now he's back with a new book, arguing for a similar amendment at the federal level. We'll talk with the architect of Pennsylvania's environmental rights amendment coming up. But first, let's get a roundup of the week's climate, conservation, and outdoor recreation news from across the state from Pax Lily Jones. White House Climate Summit last week could mean 40 world leaders to plan a global response to the crisis. The gathering focused on economics, as President Biden reiterated his commitment to creating jobs and making the U.S. a leader in clean energy. U.S. Representative Susan Wild of the Lehigh Valley says it's a moment of opportunity for Pennsylvania. By manufacturing electric cars, electrifying public transit vehicles, and paving the way for a clean energy economy that creates jobs while fighting climate change. The Biden administration says communities hit hardest by changes in the energy economy will be its first priority for support. Last week, the U.S. Department of Energy announced $109.5 million in funding for projects that directly retain and create jobs in these communities, with an emphasis on investing in technology and innovation. According to a pair of new reports by the Ohio River Valley Institute, environmental restoration presents another opportunity for job creation in Pennsylvania. Researchers estimated that cleaning up abandoned mine lands and plugging orphan wells could create more than 30,000 jobs in the Ohio Valley region. The U.S. Senate voted Wednesday to reverse methane regulation rollbacks enacted last year. The reversal reinstates a 2016 regulation that targeted methane emissions from oil and gas wells and required companies to monitor and address leaks from new wells and pipelines. A number of major oil and gas companies, including Shell and BP, have voiced support for tighter methane controls. Targeting methane emissions is important if the United States is to meet its goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030, a new target announced by President Biden at last week's summit. Last week, Governor Wolf announced that the Multimodal Transportation Fund will support 116 new projects across the Commonwealth. The fund supports improvements to infrastructure, including dedicated funding for bicycle and pedestrian improvements. This round of funding dedicated over $4 million in grants to 13 multi-use trail projects. Finally, if you're looking for something new to do outdoors now that the weather is warming up, consider joining a river sojourn. The Pennsylvania Organization for Watersheds and Rivers announced the recipients of DCNR's 2021 Pennsylvania River Sojourn grants last week, along with dates for more than a dozen paddling events to be hosted by the winning organizations. Sojourns are a fun way to learn more about your local waterway and see the surrounding landscape from a different point of view. 
You can visit our website to learn more about this year's Sojourn events and sign up for one in your area. For Pennsylvania Legacies, I'm Lily Jones. For a hundred years after the Civil War, the state government of Pennsylvania was pretty much controlled by the railroad industry, the steel industry, and the coal industry. They were accomplices to this, uh, all this exploitation. The Environmental Rights Amendment was added to the state constitution in 1971 as Article 1, Section 27. The people have a right to clean air, pure water, and to the preservation of the natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment. Yet for decades, the words lay lifeless on the page. So I was hopeful that the courts would do something with it. But unfortunately, the courts did not read the English language. Some audio from a documentary produced by State Impact Pennsylvania, Generations Yet to Come. The film is going to be screened at an upcoming virtual event to mark the 50th anniversary of Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment. That evening will feature a live panel, including DCNR Secretary Cindy Dunn and others, alongside the amendment's author and legislative champion, whose voice you just heard in that clip, it's former state senator Franklin Curry. Well, as it happens, the anniversary celebration coincides also with the release of Mr. Curry's new book. The Constitutional Question to Save the Planet, the People's Right to a Healthy Environment, published just a few days ago, Earth Day 2021, by the Environmental Law Institute. It tells the story of Article 1, Section 27 to the state constitution, ratified in 1971 with overwhelming public support, only to gather dust for more than 40 years. That is, up until a 2017 Supreme Court decision abruptly put environmental rights back on the judicial agenda. The book goes on to make the case for an even bolder idea, an environmental rights amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Frank Curry joins us now to talk about why we need it and how it might happen. Franklin Curry, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. So happy to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Tell me how the idea first came about for a constitutional guarantee of environmental rights in Pennsylvania. What what was the genesis of this idea and why pursue it as a constitutional amendment rather than as legislation or, or through some other form of policymaking? Well, it came out of my election to the State House of Representatives in 1966. I ran on a platform to vote to clean up the river by voting to bring the coal companies under the Clean Streams Law and to comprehensively rewrite the state Clean Streams Law. Now, the, the guy who chaired my campaign was named Bassey Beck, and Bassey had a column in Sunbury's Daily Item, the Sunbury Daily Item called Up and Down the River, and he advocated that the river belonged to everybody. It was not the private sewer of the, of the coal companies or a private discharge bond for power companies or anybody else. So I got the, I, I got the idea from him that the river really belonged to everybody. But it didn't really hit me as a constitutional idea until I got elected. And then, that, and then I became secretary of the House Conservation Committee where we were passing or considering a lot of conservation laws, like a clean streams law, clean air law, the, the Waste Management Act, the Coal Mining Refuge Act, and a whole host of bills, about 12 bills. 
Now, at that point, it occurred to me, these bills are great. And together, they will do a lot to solve Pennsylvania's problems. But we need something stronger, something more permanent that the future legislatures can't reduce or repeal or minimize or amend so easily. So it occurred to me that we really need a constitutional amendment. And because you get something in the Constitution, that's permanent. That's a matter of state policy that lasts forever. So that's why I got the idea, and I offered that in 1968, and it passed both sessions of the legislature, but on the ballot, and it was approved May 18, 1971, by a vote of four to one, a million to 250,000. It was stunning. I really want to hear more details about the story, but before we get to that, could you sort of set the table a little bit more by explaining how this concept of environmental rights uh, comes about in the first place? Or rather, how did you define environmental rights as you're drafting this? Um, were you inspired by or influenced by you know, some other uh, document or body of law? Was there some precedent that you had in mind? Well, no, I, had, I guess there were a few amendments offered in the U.S. Constitution. And, but really, Vassie Beck's idea was that it really belonged to everybody. And I sat down and I thought about that. And I, maybe I looked at the federal proposed amendments. I don't recall whether I did or not, but it occurred to me that people have a basic right to clean streams, clean air, and, all, and the scenic and natural values of the, of the landscape. That's, that, to me, is a fundamental human right. It's, it's a healthy environment. And so I just put those words in and I added to that, besides the basic right, that the public natural resources, such as the Susquehanna River and the air, belong to all the people, not just uh, the landowners, but the landowners have no right to, don't own the river, they don't own the air, the public has a right to that. And that's their natural uh that belongs to all the people, and the state should be trusted to keep that clean and preserve it for future generations. So that's how we got the third provision, that the state's the trustee of these natural resources for future generations. So that's, that's how it came about. It's, it's, it just sort of evolved. Yeah, I, and we will get to the evolution, too, in, in a moment. Could you take me back to late 60s, early 70s, when this process is really getting going. And tell me about the sort of the political climate in Pennsylvania at that time. How is it possible? Honestly, it's it's kind of astonishing from the vantage point of 2021 to think about something this monumental happening, you know, at all in our in our politics. But to amend the state constitution in, uh, you know, kind of a sweeping way like this. How did you do that? Like, How did you actually muster support for it and get it through. I realized that from 1966 or so until 1972, the state legislature was going through an environmental revolution. It was almost like a French revolutionary tribunal. We were sitting in judgment of the past. And we were sick and tired and resentful of what the coal companies, the power companies, the steel companies, and the railroad companies had done to the state of Pennsylvania and, and, and its environment, and particularly the coal industry. So we were in a process of deciding that we've got to make sure this never happens again. 
And about that time, the public really, but this really reflected public opinion. Television really stirred people. I mean, they saw the fish bills in the Susquehanna. They saw all kinds of environmental problems and the public woke up and the public was really angry. So I recognized politically that the political tide for the environment would never be higher than it was. So that's why it was a good time to offer the constitutional amendment because public opinion was with us. We were reflecting it. And so when I put the, when the amendment got on the ballot, the people, there were five amendments on the ballot. You know, in Pennsylvania, every constitutional amendment has to be approved by the voters after it's approved by two sessions of the legislature. Well, in May 18, 1971, there were five uh, proposed amendments to the state constitution. The environmental amendment was number, we received more votes than any other, but the vote was four to one. Women's rights, which is only equal rights for women, was also one, but that only passed two to one. And I don't say that critically, it just shows you how powerful the environmental tide was. So we were lucky, We, were, but I was politically alert enough to realize this was a tide that what we really needed to ride and we did. Well, so the other thing, one of the other things happening in Pennsylvania at that time was the the founders of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council were were first getting together. I know you were you were involved in that, so you're a figure who not only looms large in Pennsylvania environmental history, but also in the history of PEC. And we just celebrated our 50th anniversary, as you know. Um, could you talk a about that? Because to get the bill passed by the public, you want all the support you can get. You need organizations. And Curtin Windsor of Peck came in to see me in my house office, and he, we talked about this, and then he went out and Peck became very, a very strong supporter of the amendment, and they put, put, pushed it with their publications and membership, and they played a great role in getting this to the overwhelming approval it received. So Kurt Windsor and Peck were definitely part of this. So let's skip forward in time a little bit and, and look at how this amendment was applied initially, what impact it sort of had leading up to this watershed moment in 2013, this state Supreme Court ruling. But like prior to that, what was the role of the environmental rights amendment in, you know, in policymaking in Pennsylvania? Well, it depends really whether it was the legislation or whether it was the executive. Now, the courts took a dim view of it. They they anesthetized it, as I say in my book, with the with the Payne versus Kassab that they ruled case, they ruled about twenty about 1974-75 that uh, before you could apply the amendment to a case in court, it had to be a three-part test. Uh, and that was applied for about 40 years, and it really killed the, killed the amendment. It put it to sleep. So that didn't, that kind of, judicially, the amendment had very little teeth. But the executive pursued it. I know the Department of Environmental Resources used it. They required anybody seeking a permit to, uh, to change the environment of the landscape, had to fill out a long form to show how it affected the environment and what they do to keep it, keep it clean. And then we also had support from governors like Ridge, 
who talked about it a lot. Uh, they, uh, uh, the fish commissioner, through Ralph Abel, preached and talked about it a lot. So we had a lot of support, but the courts were asleep. And that's too bad because uh, they weren't reading. And uh, John Dernbach, who's a professor of law at Widener, and a great student of this amendment, wrote a series of articles in the late 1990s pointing out that the Payne versus Kassab test was not based on any language in the constitutional amendment and the court should change it. So in 2013, the Supreme Court got the case of Robinson Township in which the state's oil and gas law was being challenged as a violation of this. And Castile was determined, Justice Castile, who was the chief justice, was determined to take a fresh look at the at the language, so he did. And he ruled in that case with the help of his colleagues that the courts of Pennsylvania have to read the amendment with regard to the environment by its plain English language meaning. He told the courts, in other words, read English, don't bring in things that don't belong there like the Payne versus Kassab test which was not based on the language of the court. So that put the Payne versus Kassab test on the side. And the next case before the court, a couple of years later, they finally killed Payne versus Kassab. So from now on, the courts are reading this by the plain English language. And it's had some impact. So I feel really good about what Justice Castile and his colleagues did on the Supreme Court. Let's look at those impacts a little bit more. So how, you know, you said the, the amendment and its place in politics and policy has evolved over the years. What point have we evolved to now, particularly post-2013? What has been accomplished, you know, on, on this basis? Well, for one thing, they would take the pain versus the soft. You know, that, that was knocked out. So the pain versus the soft was knocked out. But more important, in the Robinson Township case, the court invalidated a section of the oil and gas law, which had been drafted by the oil and gas industry, and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the so-called uh, the shale industry had drafted it to so that they overrode local zoning. Well, that was knocked out by under this amendment. It, it couldn't stop local government from zoning. Other provisions, and the next the next case that came along. The legislature was trying to take money that was set aside for conservation purposes and use it for general budget purposes. In other words, they take it out of the environmental purposes for which it was intended. The court said, you can't do that. So the courts have begun to set out standards and things. You have to recognize this amendment when you're dealing with the environment. So I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, certainly things the things are looking up in Pennsylvania. The rest of the country, uh, the, the rest of the planet maybe is the right lens to be looking through. Uh, maybe not so bright at the moment. And that's that brings us to the present day and, and your new book and your call for a federal amendment, uh, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution similar to what Pennsylvania has. Tell me about that. How would, how would that work? You know, what would you expect it to accomplish? And then we can talk about how we get there politically. Well, first of all, I have to recognize the U.S. Constitution is silent, absolutely silent on the environment. And uh, that's why the 
the lands like the copper uh, areas of the West were exploited so badly and the environment ravaged so much by copper companies because there was nothing in the, in the U.S. Constitution or laws to stop companies from doing what they wanted to do with the landscape. So what this would do is say that the public natural resources of the United States, as lies in Pennsylvania, uh, are the common property of all the people, and the U.S. government should protect them, preserve them for future generations. It would also establish a federal right to a clean environment. And that would be a great step forward because we don't have that. Now, you have the U.S. government for, for 50 years has been subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. And of course, fossil fuels are what's causing climate change because of the carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. So this would change the role of government to make it a trustee of the environment and not a conspirator or a collaborator in exploiting it. So I, that's what it would do. I give people a right to go to court to change things. One thing about Pennsylvania, you can go to court if you don't challenge it. And the government has to defend itself. Now, you don't have that with the U.S. government now. Yeah, I mean, and when you think about if if such an amendment existed at the federal level and were you know applied uniformly, enforced consistently, et cetera, it boggles the mind the impact that that would have. How how differently this country would be run if that were the case. Oh, it's true, and that's why you need it. You need something right. Let me say this: I, you know, the U.S. Constitution also was very silent on slavery mm -hmm. and all that. Look, at, and after the Civil War, they passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, there was silent on women's rights. There was nothing about women as equal partners in the government until the, until the women got organized. It took them 100 years, but in 1919, you got the 19th Amendment to give women an equal right, which, which should have been mentioned in 1787, but it wasn't. The same thing is true now of the environment. We got it, we need to get it in there, and I'm hopeful we will. Well, I mean, you used the, the word revolutionary early on to describe the, the mood in Pennsylvania specifically around environmental issues. And it seems like it's been a while since we've had everybody kind of on the same page in that way, certainly at a national level. Um, but at the same time, new administration in Washington, a new arguably awareness about the climate threat, I think, just in the general population. We're beginning to see that uh, not sort in in quite as much of a partisan way as it has in the past, perhaps. Maybe that's just being optimistic. But I don't know. I guess I'm wondering, do you feel like we are at or approaching a moment where everything could change in, in that dramatic, sweeping kind of overnight way that's happened a few times in our history? Well, it's hard to say because of the, the polarized nature of what's going on in Washington. Congress, particularly the Senate, does not represent the American public. I mean, you think of the big states like California has 40 million people and two senators. Wyoming has about 600 or 700,000 people and two senators. Texas has 24 million people. Florida has 20 million. And right there, you've got over 80 million people. That's a fourth of the That's about 80 million. That would be a good hunk of the United States population. Only have six senators. And all these smaller states with a smaller population, the Dakotas and so on, in the middle of the country, Wyoming, Delaware, 
they all get two senators, and the senators of small states far outnumber, or significantly outnumber those in the big states. So right there, you got an imbalance. And then you have the filibuster problem. So uh, uh, together, it's hard to see what could happen in the U.S. Senate. But this climate change is a very serious threat. And I think it's such an imminent threat that eventually people are going to say, we've got to do something revolutionary to stop it because you can't just keep going on. And if we're going to save the planet, we've got to take revolutionary steps. And I think Article 1, Section 27 creates the right principles to act to stop climate change. And that's why I think we have a chance to pass it, even though right now it's, it's the Senate particularly is in bad shape. But you never know. I'm optimistic. I think things can happen or will happen. The president is, is, is for stopping climate change. I think a lot of senators will be that aren't saying so. It's a matter of life or death on the planet. You keep saying you're optimistic, and certainly I think this book is an expression of that optimism. What gives you hope for the future that, that we can meet this challenge and overcome this threat? Well, I think the American people are, are, are awakening now. They realize what's going on. And you're going to see, I think you're going to see more political action to elect people who reflect public opinion. And uh, the American people are very astute. I think they recognize climate change as a serious, imminent threat to their future existence. And they're going to one action. And I think all that they will, like the people of Pennsylvania in the 19... Uh, 60s, they're going to stand up and say, we want action. And I think it's a mimic isn't a way to do it. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I, think, I think it will happen. When? I don't know. But we've got to start pushing. You can't wait. So establishing a constitutional environmental right for Pennsylvania is obviously a huge accomplishment. It's an order of magnitude more difficult to make something like that happen at the federal level, uh, especially now. But that's not the end of it, obviously. It's a planetary scale issue that suggests that the solution has to be international, has to be collective across the entire planet in some way. This is, this is, it takes more than just the United States to climate, the climate problem. We've got to get the big, particularly the, well, you need about six countries who produce about 90% of the emissions to take action. Now, we've got the Paris Peace Accord, but if to show we are serious, we have to set the example of showing our amendment. If we offer and push this amendment, that will show other countries that we are serious about cleaning up the environment and stopping climate change. And that will help us get, as a matter of international policy, countries like Russia and China and India and the, and the European Union to work together to stop climate change. We have to provide leadership, but to do leadership, we have to set the right example. And uh, by going for the amendment, we're showing we're going to have a permanent policy, not one that undulates with each presidency. Remember Obama, Barack Obama, started to implement the Paris Peace Accord with his, with his uh, air plan to stop or to reduce emissions from power plants. Well, and Trump committee and, and revoked it, along with 65 other policies. Well, Biden could has re, has re, re revoked and put those things back in 
But if we get a Republican president in four years, he might do the same thing here. He might do what Trump did and take it all back. So if we get this amendment here, it's going to give us show the, our country and the world we're serious about the environment and we make it a matter of fundamental policy and fundamental human rights that every government's got to obey uh, and honor and protect. I'm glad you made that point because I was struck by how the the way you've defined environmental rights as a subset of, or, or, or related to human rights, an international global concept. The first recognition internationally that a healthy environment is a basic human right came in, in uh, 1988 or 90 when they had the uh, in, they had a first environmental conference in Sweden and it was recognized in the final declaration that a healthy environment is a fundamental human right and so the United Nations has recognized it for a long time but it really hasn't been implemented. The United Nations has no power to implement. It recommends, but it's not a government in the sense that the, the Congress is a government. The United Nations is not a government, but it does set examples, it does provide information. And they have organized a series of conferences like the one at Kyoto, like the one in Rio, like the one in Paris, for doing this. And they're moving forward. But you really need, each government's got to, the governments have got to act. And that means they, if the government, the United States, one of the, the most powerful government in the world, with the possible exception of China, we, if we put this in our constitution and say this is our fundamental commitment to a fundamental right, that's going to set a, a significant example for the rest of the world. They're going to give us a lot more heft when we negotiate. It is really interesting to think about U.S. foreign policy and how often whenever the United States gets involved overseas in some kind of a conflict, the reason given often is we have to safeguard human rights around the world. The world expects the United States to play this leadership role. If we understand environmental rights as human rights and treat them with the same weight and importance that we treat other you know, human rights issues— what would that look like, you know, in terms of the United States projecting power around the world? That's that's quite a prospect. What is more fundamental than a healthy environment? I mean, the U.S. Constitution gives us the right to free speech, freedom of religion. What good are those if we're going to suffocate in climate change? There is nothing more fundamental than a healthy environment. That's the basis. For, without that, we cannot have life. So I see that as quite clearly and long overdue as a part of the U.S. Constitution and a commitment from our federal government that we need and we citizens need to see. Well, Mr. Cray, I'd like to thank you not just for your time today, but for I mean, your contributions to to securing and protecting Pennsylvania's environment and, and also to the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I know you've been closely involved with us over the years and it's an honor to meet you, and I'm really glad we had this conversation. Well, thank you very much, Josh. I just want to say that I've known Peck since 1967 or 68. I served on the board of Peck for 20 years, and I think they've been one of the they have been the preeminent Pennsylvania environmental uh, organization, and I salute them on their 50th birthday. So I'm happy to participate and work with them and keep going forward. The 
find more information on Franklin Curry's new book, The Constitutional Question to Save the Planet, in the episode description at peckpa.org, our website where you can hear many more conversations with people who've helped shape Pennsylvania's environmental history as well as its future. Pennsylvania Legacies is just one of the many content offerings available at the website. You can learn about what's going on in our watersheds program, our energy and climate work, communities and landscapes, and policy touching all of those areas and more. PECPA.org is the website. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and on Twitter, we're at PECPA. Hope you can join us for the next edition of Pennsylvania Legacies coming your way in just a couple of weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Thank you.